morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this morning, this fine Friday morning, is a scholar and gentleman, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we've been taking a, a look at some of the foundational problems that we see with the construction of our United States Constitution. Uh, it is a great document. It's probably the best Constitution uh, the, the world has seen, but it has some flaws, and we're trying to identify those foundational issues, those foundational problems that really need to be resolved, because quite clearly, as we look at what's happening in our country today with our federal government and with our state governments as well, we clearly are not preserving liberty as was designed by our founders who said that the whole purpose of government was to protect and defend your God-given rights. And uh, we see Washington, D.C. clearly is not doing that. Our state capitals are not doing that. And uh, we have a government that's not just run amok and run afoul, but appears to be on a trajectory to uh, to produce a, a system of tyranny. And that's exactly what our founders said in the Declaration of Independence, why they were fighting against King George III's regime, because he was uh, bent on creating a system of tyranny where no one would have their life protected by the government, their their liberty protected, nor their property protected. And so they sought, as we have a God-given right, when the government does not protect our God-given rights, one of their, our additional God-given rights is to alter or abolish. Those are the exact terms of the Declaration of Independence. So I'm not saying anything revolutionary. I'm not saying anything un-American. It's quintessentially American to say that if the government fails to do the job that we, the people, hired it to do, which is to protect our God-given rights, when the government fails to do that, we have another God-given right. And that is the God-given right to either alter that government, if it can be altered, or to abolish that government and establish one that will protect our God-given rights. And actually, that's the entire argument of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, they were appealing to the whole world. Here's the reasons why we're separating from Great Britain. Here's the reason why we've rejected King George III as our king, and we're going to establish a Republican form of government, not the party, no, not the political party, but the philosophy of government, a republic, not a democracy, as they clearly stated in many, many of their writings. And they argued that they had a God-given right to do exactly that, because if indeed the whole purpose of human civil government is to protect our God-given rights, and you're living under a civil government that does not protect your God-given rights and instead attacks your God-given rights, well, you clearly have a right uh, to step out from under such a government, because it really is not a true civil government. It is a tyrannical government. That is, a government has been taken over by, well, well, I guess you could call them criminals. Yeah, criminals of one sort or another, or, you know, you might uh, liken them to the mafia. Uh, yeah, yeah, we do have a federal mafia, and many members of that criminal class today are abusing the God-given rights of, of we the people. We're going to talk about that this morning, but Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on this next building block that needs to be examined as we uh, move towards either altering or abolishing the current form of government. Well, the subject for this morning is separating the Department of Justice from the executive branch. The prior session discussed how enemies are established, 
and how the need for secrecy is often used for political purposes. There was a lot of emphasis on external enemies and how that can involve the investigation of United States citizens. What has become called the deep state has an insatiable appetite for enemies to justify its existence and its actions. If external enemies fail to provide the crisis atmosphere the deep state requires, it will turn to internal issues such as race, gender preference, and ecological perception to keep the political pot boiling. If there is an idea underlying this, it is that there is rarely a clear line between external and internal matters, and we should not be surprised that a nation's surveillance organizations, no matter how constructed, will rarely restrict their activities to either external or internal matters. All surveillance slash investigatory agencies pose a threat to individual liberty. It is time to shift our focus to the prosecutorial function of government, which at federal level the United States government is the Department of Justice. In doing so, we will constantly need to reference actions in the surveillance slash investigatory function, which work hand in glove with the prosecutorial function. Historically, the surveillance state can be traced to the Palmer Raids immediately after World War I. The subsequent deportation of the so-called Soviet Ark, bearing the notorious Red Emma Goldman and other political enemies. J. Edgar Hoover, then recently graduated from law school, was hired by the Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer to create lists of red suspects, who would then be raided and brought to trial. This was the period of the first Red Scare, and it ran its course soon after it was initiated. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, was created in 1908 under President Theodore Roosevelt. At that time, it had less than 40 employees, but has grown to an employment of 35,000. J. Edgar Hoover was appointed as Assistant Director in 1924, and later in that year was elevated to acting director. By the time of his death in 1972, he had become one of the most feared persons in the federal government. For most of us, the modern operations of the FBI are more relevant, and they began on July 5, 2016, when FBI Director James Comey announced in a press conference that Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server to store confidential government information should not be prosecuted in spite of the fact that she had been guilty of this federal crime. Comey offered no supporting reason for his opinion, nor did he suggest why he had usurped the role of the Department of Justice in publicly issuing that opinion. According to traditional understanding, the role of the FBI is to investigate charges for federal crimes, and the Department of Justice has the responsibility for determining if prosecution is appropriate. Attorney General Loretta Lynch voiced no opposition to Comey's public announcement, finding herself in the difficult position as an attorney general appointed by a Democratic president and having to make a decision to prosecute the leading Democratic candidate for the presidency in 2016. In contrast, Republican candidate and later President Donald Trump 
found himself on the defensive for alleged collusion with the Russian government to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. The FBI under James Comey was deeply involved in this unprecedented investigation of the presidential candidate that was based primarily upon the discredited Steele dossier. Concerning the actors behind the, this hoax, The Guardian has reported that Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the Democratic National Committee have agreed to pay $113,000 to settle a Federal Election Commission investigation into whether they violated campaign finance law by misreporting spending on research that eventually became the infamous Steele dossier. Of course, the $113,000 payment is coffee change considering the magnitude of the crime. The third event in the sequence of weaponization of the FBI is the Hunter Biden laptop case, which is clouded by charges that the investigation by the FBI has been slow walked. The case is complicated by numerous federal charges, including failure to register as an agent of a foreign entity, tax evasion, and according to the United States Attorney, Attorney's Office for the District of Delaware, from on or about October 12, 2018 through October 23, 2018, Hunter Biden possessed a firearm despite knowing he was an unlawful user of and addicted to a controlled substance. Getting to the truth in all these charges has consumed significant time by parties on both sides of the matter and cannot be fully addressed here. A pattern of deferment to Hunter Biden as the son of the president seems to be apparent, as even NBC News is willing to acknowledge in this May 19, 2022 statement. From 2013 through 2018, Hunter Biden and his company brought in about $11 million via his roles as an attorney and a board member with a Ukrainian firm accused of bribery and his work with a Chinese businessman now accused of fraud, according to an NBC News analysis of a copy of Biden's hard drive and iCloud account and documents released by Republicans on two Senate committees. The documents and the analysis, which don't show what he did to earn millions from his Chinese partners, raise questions about national security, business ethics, and potential legal exposure. In December 2020, Biden acknowledged in a statement that he was the subject of a federal investigation into his taxes. NBC News was first to report that an ex-business partner had warned Biden he should amend his tax returns to disclose $400,000 in income from the Ukrainian firm Burisma. GOP congressional sources also say that if Republicans take back the House his, uh, this fall, they'll demand more documents and probe whether any of Biden's income uh, went to his father, President Joe Biden. If critics of the Biden administration before the plea deal offered by the Department of Justice suspected politicization of departments that are 
that are the responsibility of the executive branch of the federal government. They were convinced after. NPR describes the plea deal. Hunter Biden, the surviving son of a president, has been charged with federal offenses related to his taxes and business dealings, the U.S. Justice Department said Tuesday. The younger Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filling, filing, I'm sorry, filing of federal income taxes. Federal authorities also charged him with a felony firearm offense for which he agreed to enter a pre-trial diversion agreement that allows him to avoid prosecution. According to David Weiss, the Delaware U.S. attorney, Biden did not pay federal income taxes for either 2017 or 2018, despite owing more than $100,000 in taxes each year. Additionally, in October 2018, Biden possessed a firearm, despite knowing he was an unlawful user of and addicted to a controlled substance, Weiss office uh, said. If convicted, Hunter Biden faces a maximum penalty of 12 months in prison on each of the tax charges and a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison on the firearm charge. But Weiss, Weiss's office noted that the actual sentences determined by judges are typically less than the maximums. A source familiar with the deal said the Justice Department had agreed to recommend probation on the tax charges, but a judge will make the ultimate decision. In particular, the Heritage Foundation challenged the deal in federal court and was successful. According to the Heritage Foundation's uh, Daily Signal, plea agreements are generally straightforward. The terms are, with perhaps minor modifications, standard and set forth the complete agreement between the government and the defendant, what rights the defendant will waive, the charges to which he will plead guilty, any charges that the government will forego in return for the defendant's guilty plea, what uh, the potential sentence uh, will be, and what recommendations, if any, the government will make at the time of sentencing. After the judge has established the defendant uh, is competent to enter the plea and is knowingly and voluntarily doing so and has established that there is a factual predicate for the plea. The judge, pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 11C1A, makes a determination about whether accepting the plea agreement serves the interests of justice. If she concludes that it does, she accepts the plea and sets a future date for sentencing. Of course, if the judge concludes that the agreement is not in the interests of justice because, oh, Let's speculate the government conducted a shoddy investigation and the deal is excessively lenient, which would certainly accord with the views of the two whistleblower IRS agents who are assigned to the case, Gary Shapley, uh, Shapley and Joseph Ziegler. Then the judge can refuse to accept the plea. Apparently, the charges against Hunter uh, Biden still remain open. And there's hope that further investigation will lead to discovery of more wrongdoing by the younger Biden. Regardless of the outcome, 
weaponization of executive surveillance investigatory prosecutorial functions raises significant constitutional questions related to the Constitution's wording and intent. Beyond that is the question of the Constitution's basic structure, and that structure's failure to block obvious political conflict of interest. Let's look at the wording in the Constitution first. There is nothing in that document that specifically grants the federal government either surveillance or investigatory powers, nor is there anything specific that establishes a Department of Justice with prosecutorial powers. There are only two departments that are specifically created by the Constitution, the Treasury and a Postal Service. The Treasury is referenced in Article 1, Section 6. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. The Postal Service is referenced in Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have the power to establish post offices and post roads. It is difficult to picture operating a government without a Treasury function, but why is it necessary for federal government to operate Postal Service it, why it is um, uh, why it is necessary for a, a federal government to operate a postal service isn't obvious. Hasn't the free market demonstrated the ability to deliver documents and packages more cost effectively? Hasn't the federal government created a, a monopoly for itself and one that is constantly losing money? Admittedly, we're on a tangent here. But the point is to reveal the irrationality of the entire department-creating mechanism of the federal government. We might look at where the Federal Department of Justice is explicitly described in the Constitution. We'll waste a lot of time because it's not there. Does that mean that the creation of the Department of Justice was unconstitutional? And what about all those subsequently created departments like the Department of the Interior, the Department of Education, and others? Are all of these unconstitutional? The surprising answer is that all are constitutional according to Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which states, The President shall have power, by and with advice and consent of the Senate, to appoint all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law best the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Now compare that with Jefferson's complaint of King George III in the Declaration of Independence. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out our substance. In other words, the Constitution is absolutely contradictory to the Declaration of Independence. Does that mean that the previously mentioned departments are operating constitutionally? Of course not the operation of any federal department must be constrained by the concept of constitutionally enumerated powers. Theoretically, the president, with the cooperation of Congress, 
could create all kinds of new departments, employing millions uh, while claiming to improve employment in the economy. It all sounds like a Lewis Carroll through-the-looking-glass kind of world. Are we surprised that it operates so crazily? Let's look at the need for legal services within the federal government, something that George Washington must have considered when he appointed his fellow Virginian, Edmund Randolph, to be his first attorney general. And let's assume that there is a need for legal services throughout the uh, legitimate federal functions. Comprising most lawyers, Congress hardly seems to have a need for additional lawyers to advise it. Nonetheless, Congress has its own legal services. The executive branch has its legal services separate from the Department of Justice. The Office of the Attorney General was established in 1789 by Section 35 of the Judiciary Act, and there shall also be appointed a meet person, learned in the law, to act as Attorney General for the United States, who shall be sworn or affirmed to a faithful execution of his office, whose duty it shall be to prosecute and conduct all suits in the Supreme Court in which the United States shall be concerned, and to give his advice and opinion upon questions of law when required by the President of the United States, or when requested by the heads of any of the departments, touching any matters that may concern their departments, and shall receive such compensation for services as shall by law be provided. If a president already has access to the legal services of the attorney general, why does a president need a separate office of the general counsel? And every department that has been created seems to require its own legal counsel. Under the centralized government, it appears that the need for lawyers multiplies faster than rabbits in nature. If a president appoints an attorney general with the advice and consent of the Senate, it should be obvious that the ominous investigatory and prosecutorial functions of government are likewise subject to political pressure. All that is necessary is for one political party to control both the presidency and the Senate, and the door is open to weaponization of these functions against political opponents. We also see there is a certain borderline constitutionality in these functions. Technically, they are consistent with the Constitution, but one has to question why the elaboration of these functions is left to the whims of ordinary legislative processes rather than being enumerated in the Constitution. It is when we consider the Frankenstein principle, the idea of giving to a political body that we create the power to investigate, prosecute, and judge us, that we should have our greatest reservations. It is not that we expect to be immune to legitimate law, but that when that is necessary, it should be consistent with the judgment by our peers, a recognized principle of justice. Of all of the levels of government, the federal level is the most remote from us. It is difficult to accept that when we are investigated, prosecuted, and judged in the federal system, that we are being treated by our peers. 
there's also the issue of state versus federal sovereignty to be considered. How much of sovereignty has been silently removed from the states and absorbed in the federal monster? Consistent with that thinking, much of what the federal government does today should be removed from the federal jurisdiction to that of the Council of the States. In any case, accumulating these functions under the president represents a dangerous concentration of powers. If Montesquieu's separation of powers is to work to protect the people's rights, the executive branch of the federal government should be limited to executing the will of the people. Well, I fully agree. And by the way, just going back to that, uh, uh, you know, plea deal that Hunter Biden was getting, I think I heard that the judge discovered something uh, that just outraged, uh, I guess it was her, that uh, there was a part of the plea deal, and I forget what uh, side bar it was in that, but then it basically said that if Hunter Biden accepted this plea deal, no further charges for any crimes he has committed would be uh, done. In other words, he was going to be free and clear, no further investigation. So I'm glad that the whole thing failed because really uh, that, that criminal needs to be brought to justice. Wow, it's, it, it, is, it is a mess. But I think your, your point is well taken that the problem of conflating the investigatory power, the I, I, I FBI, with the prosecutorial power of the DOJ is extremely dangerous if those two are not separate. Because if the spy-making agency is not reined in to say it can only spy on that which is le legally permissible under the Constitution, hey, they can spy on everything we're doing. Oh, like, oh, oh yeah, they're currently doing that, right? NSA looking at all of our emails, scooping up all of our phone conversations and all of our banking records and credit card, everything, everything that's out there on us, you know, they illegally, and we know it's illegal because it's a violation of Fourth Amendment, they are illegally doing. Let me read the Fourth Amendment because it's, it's important to remember the restrictions our founders wisely placed in the Bill of Rights on the federal government. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants, in other words, if there is going to be an investigation, it must be preceded by a warrant that goes on to say no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So notice the restrictions even there on a warrant. The warrant can't be a general warrant to say, we're going to search every one of your emails, nor we're going to search your premises. We're going to search whatever we want. No, no, no. It has to be limited to specifying what place, what uh, things, what items, what persons uh, to be investigated and seized. And, and they did this because they know this is exactly what King George III was up to. You know, he would send his troops into people's homes on a fishing expedition. That is, they had no evidence that a crime had be been committed. And actually, that's what the Fourth Amendment is requiring here. There has to have been a crime before there could be an investigation. If there's no crime, then there's no probable cause, therefore no investigation and, and your your personal private papers, none of those can be touched. But during the colonial era, the king was infamous for uh, sending his lobster backs into people's homes to rifle through all their papers. And the papers were particularly important because of the Stamp Act, which required every piece of paper basically that had to receive a stamp 
indicating that that piece of paper paid the tax, the stamp that, you know, so they go looking, not knowing whether or not you had any, any illegal paper in your house, but they would go searching through all of your papers, overturning everything in your home to find that one piece of paper that did not have the stamp on it, indicating that you had not paid the proper tax for that piece of paper. This is exactly the problem. And our founders wisely knew that if you do not rein in uh, a governmental investigatory power uh, to link it to an actual crime that has been committed, that government will run amok and run over your God-given rights. Uh, An example of this would be what is often called DUI checkpoints. You know, all these cars are running down the highway and the police begin pulling over not just selected cars, they pull over every single car on the highway to do a DUI checkpoint, see if the driver is drunk. Well, wait a minute. There's no evidence they had that a crime has been committed at all. None. They have no evidence that a crime has been committed, but they're going to go looking for the crime. And this really reminds us of the uh, the communist, I forget his name, Burkhardt or something of that nature, but uh, he, he was a, a Stalin's henchman and he said, show me the man and I will show you the crime. And that's exactly Exactly the opposite of our founders' approach that says, no, no, there must have been a crime committed before we begin any investigation of any searching of anyone's uh, private papers or, or information. And, and again, our, our government has gone communist in this respect, that they're searching and investigating all of us. The largest employer in my county is NSA, that spy agency that admittedly a Snowden blew the whistle on them. They're spying on all the Americans. Illegal, unconstitutional, violation of the Fourth Amendment. But they're doing it. They're spying on it. In fact, they have so much information they're, they're vacuuming up that they could not contain it at Fort Meade, there where the NSA is, is housed. And they built a huge facility out in Utah with m- mega computing power and mega storage power. And they're vacuuming up, I understand, not just our, our information, but information from everyone on the whole planet. It's like, what in the world? Where in the world did our government ever give permission for such a spy agency to be created? So the FBI is is, is a piker in comparison with what the NSA is doing. We have a government that is so far out of control uh, from the limits that our constitution has uh, placed upon it that uh, I think you're absolutely right, Phil. We've got to draw them back in either by altering our form of government or, as shocking as it may sound, abolishing our form of government and creating a government uh, that will stay within the bounds. And I agree with you that that means we need to secure the check that was designed originally, that was the state governments against the federal government. We need to re-secure that check. It was not secured as firmly as it needed uh, to be uh, in, in the founding era. And one of the illustrations of, uh, you know, way, way overreach that, that is going on is when uh, Trump just this past week was indicted again. And uh, th- the indictments against him recognize this kind of violation. They say he obstructed an official proceeding. There was a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. There was conspiracy to defraud the United States. And there was a conspiracy to prevent others from carrying out their constitutional duties. Now, all of these, all of these are related to January 6th. And they're claiming that Trump was the mastermind behind January 6th, and it's all of his fault. And January 6th was an attempt to overthrow the government, an absolute lie, by the way. Because if you look at what uh, what was happening from not the plants from the FBI, and that's the other criminal thing going on there. 
we had people from the FBI, hired employees of the FBI, agitating and seeking to get people to enter the Capitol building. That is, there were protesters there who were protesting what was being done, but they did not think they would enter the Capitol building. That was not on their plan. But it was the plan of the FBI to get these people in by whatever means to agitate and to urge people to go in uh, and, and to be Asian provocateurs there in the crowd. And we are not being told how many, but we know there were FBI agents doing this and perhaps other federal agents doing this for pay. That is, they were trying to create the incident that was ultimately created. And so uh, Trump has been, uh, you know, these these charges have been leveled against him. Uh, these are serious charges. It's interesting to see the uh, fella who is uh, bringing about this indictment uh, because he has been a, an attack dog against Trump uh, previously. Jack Smith of the Department of Justice is the one who filed this. It is interesting because he made a speech when he unsealed these uh, the the list. And in that uh, unsealing of the list, again, he draws it all back to January 6th. He says that, and I quote Jack Smith, the attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. Well, let me pause right there. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. And I'm sure this guy has sworn an oath to the Constitution, but obviously he doesn't understand our form of government. He, he believes we're a democracy. Either that or he knows we're not a democracy. We're a republic. And he's lying because that's what a federal officials are supposed to do. Lie to the people, right? Okay. He continues, as described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies, lies by the defendant, that is President Trump, targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. And so the message is very clear. Uh, it's all about January 6th, which we know was engineered and designed by the leftists in order to create a false flag and say, look, we got a terrible insurrection. They're trying to overthrow the government. Now, they're not trying to overthrow the government. They're trying to do what our First Amendment promises us that we have guaranteed to us, one of our God-given rights among the, the, the series of God-given rights of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, is the God-given right that Congress shall make no law uh, abridging the right of the people peaceably to assemble. And that's what they were there, peaceably to assemble. There was some violence, but some of that violence is clearly connected with the FBI agitators that were in the crowd, people hired to create violence. Think of that. Our government hiring people to create violence, to create a crime, and then blame it on the people who've gathered there peaceably to assemble. We have a God-given right to peaceably assemble and a God-given right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And that's what they were there for on January 6th. They recognized that there was fraud, clear fraud in, in, in Georgia and uh, a long list of states where their elections and their election system was so corrupted that those who came to protest understood uh, that this was not an honest election. And the outcome of this election was not what we, the people, uh, wanted it to be. So we have a politicization of the Department of Justice, a weaponization of uh, the FBI, and as you pointed out, Phil, the two of these working together are destroying our constitutional republic. And this is pure politics. It's not about justice, because if it was about justice, as you've mentioned already, 
Hillary Clinton had committed crimes of treason by putting information in an insecure server, a violation of federal... And was she prosecuted? Of course not. The crimes that she committed, the crimes that Comey himself committed, and on and on the list goes of criminals, Schiff and so on. These people have all been given a pass. They have been able to commit all kinds of crimes. Oh, oh, but Trump, we're going to go after him because he had some papers. How about those papers that Biden had all over? Many more papers and nothing has happened to Biden, right? Oh, but they're going to go after Trump for the papers he had. Again, there is clearly a two-tiered standard. If you're on the in power side, those who are in power, if you are with them, if you're part of their political machine, you could commit all kinds of crimes. In fact, the BLM and the, those rioters, those rioters did some real damage, billions of dollars of damage. They actually killed people. No one on January 6th was killed by the protesters who were there. Yes, there were people killed, but they were killed by the government agents, the ones who shot Ashley Babbitt to death and so on. There was death, but the death was due to the government's actions against those who came. Uh, not, not the reverse. The people didn't kill any government agents. The agents died. There was an agent that died the next day. The evidence is very clear. He had a health issue. It was unrelated to his service on, on the day before January 6th. But the people who did die on January 6th were killed by the government agents. So we have a government here doing everything to protect its power and to hold on to its power and to continue in power uh, and to prevent clearly here. And the timing of this is all very, very suspicious as well. You know, right at the lead up of the what needs to be the front edge of what's happening in terms of the preparation for uh, the presidential election of 2024. So the primaries that precede that and the caucuses and all the things that take place, we're all right on the leading edge. They're trying to take Donald Trump out of the running. So this is clearly interference with election when they're trying to, they were trying to accuse him with a Russian hoax and all that, trying to accuse him with interfering the election. They are doing that. In fact, you can almost say it's, it's a, an oxymoron whenever the left says that uh, someone is doing wrong. It's really, they're admitting by projection, the wrongs that they are doing. So when Hillary Clinton crawled out a vast right-wing conspiracy against her husband, no, 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 no. She's part of the vast left-wing conspiracy to destroy our constitutional republic. And just about everything they accuse other people are doing are exactly what they are doing. They said Russia, uh, Russia collusion. You know, Trump is colluding with Russia. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what Hillary did? Yeah, she colluded with uh, Russians who put together the fake and, and false dossier that steal the, the, the you know terrible uh, spy who was a terrible spy, therefore no longer working for the, uh, the uh, spy agencies in, in England. Anyway, the whole thing that Hillary was blaming Trump of doing is exactly what she uh, was doing. And so we have a deep state that seems to be in control and they have a standard of justice and their standard of justice is if you're with us and our goals as a deep state, which is the destruction of our constitutional republic, you will get away with whatever crime you commit. Go out and commit a crime in the name of the deep state, you're fine. But if you stand against the globalists, which Trump clearly did, and if you oppose their agenda, which Trump also did in his four years in office, then you will be crushed. And this is exactly what the communists have done, which tells us where the deep state uh, sympathies lie. They lie with communism and they operate like communists do. And so we are in a place where this deep state 
and their political attempt to take down our constitutional republic needs to be opposed and understood. And we, the people, need to be the ones who who back back up and, and uh, force them out of power. Phil, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, first, I think you may have been uh, uh, referring to Berea, who yes. was uh, the internal security guy, and uh, he, like uh, J. Edgar Hoover, was probably the most feared person in the, the Soviet Union. Um, I, I'd like to emphasize that Montesquieu believed that government needed to keep all branches, but particularly the executive branch of government on a short leash. Now, um, I think he was the one who created the principle of the separation of powers. And according to that, the representatives of the people make the rules through legislation, and the executive branch is limited to executing that will. They don't have powers beyond that. That is clearly outside of the, the intent. And one has to raise questions about this, this whole idea of being able to, to spy on the, the citizens, particularly those who have commit, committed uh, no offense whatsoever, uh, and also to determine who will be prosecuted. That seems like a, a conflict of interest that is very, very significant. Guys, uh, I like your idea of saying that this there needs to be a council of states that really have those powers in their hands, and therefore you've got 50 that are check and balance against each other, as well as 50 that are preventing the federal the Leviathan, the federal monster, the federal Frankenstein, I guess you'd call it, or how I call it, the federal mafia, from ever gaining that kind of power in their hands. And, and you know, it, it, at one time in the history of our country, you could look at that and say, well, you know, if they're just going to look at the papers in your house and so forth, that's ah, no, no, no big deal. But now we know that their spy capacity is just enormous. You know, actually, we know that they're spying on us with our cell phones. They know the location of where we're at with our cell phone. They know the conversation we have. They know the emails and the text messages. They've got enormous amount of information on us. Add to that all the financial information. Every time we swipe a credit card, every time we write a check or make a bag transaction or a debit card, all of that information. In fact, if you were to look at the information they have on you, they know more about you than you know about yourself. You probably can't. Uh, you know, remember what you did on uh, on July second, uh, twenty twenty. You know uh, wh what happened that day? Did you buy anything? They could tell every place you were at, conversations you had, what you purchased, what internet searches you did, what emails. You, you mean enormous amount of information you can't even remember, and that's a very very dangerous power to have in the hands of any human being. And why? Why would the government want this power? The only answer I can come up with is they want to tyrannically rule over us so they could find out some detail. Oh, you tore that tag off your pillow. And so the pillow police are going to come, you know, we're going to arrest you because you tore that tag. And that said, do not remove this tag. Oh, what? Uh, they should not have this kind of uh, ability to spy on us that, that they currently have. And and I agree with the president, uh, oh, JFK, and there was one other president who said, we need to destroy the CIA, and I, I like the candidate. I uh, have some objections to some of the things he stands for. Vivek uh, uh, Ramaswamy has said that if he wins the election, he would tear down the FBI, completely eliminate the FBI. And I applaud that. We need to eliminate it, in my view. Uh, it's an agency out of control, along with the DOJ, obviously. As you said, we need to 
return those powers to the state governments. You also mentioned um, uh, Hillary Clinton in particular. She's really notorious for this kind of stuff, uh, mentioning the extreme right-wing conspiracy. And I've just been reading uh, uh, a particular chapter in Charles Mackey's uh, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, and he um, he recounts uh, the witchcraft persecutions. And as you you read this and reflect on the fact that today we look back and we say, how ignorant could these people have been? Uh, <clears throat> how superstitious could they have been? You know, we feel above them. And yet, here we have a vestige of that kind of thing going on uh, right today. I mean, basically, this is Hillary Clinton claiming uh, a witchcraft uh, persecution. Yeah. Just because we're right-wing or because, it, uh, for example, you support the Constitution of the United States, I mean, how does that make you a threat to the the uh, uh, to the United States? I, I just, I can't follow it. Oh, here's how it works, Phil. It makes you a threat to the deep state. Because if you truly stand for the Constitution, which we do, and that's uh, the purpose of we the people, the Constitution matters, we're uh, teaching the principles of, of our founding. And if you stand for the Constitution and you are opposed, as we are, to anyone who violates their oath of office to the Constitution, they are a criminal. They should be dealt with as a criminal, in some case, dealt with as a traitor to their country. They have betrayed their country. And I think there's evidence that Biden has done this and his deals with Ukraine, bribery going on there, his deals with China and the bribery going on there. All of those things are such that uh, we say, well, wait a minute. You know, if this person has betrayed their country, well, what about those who are uh, who are committed to the destruction of our constitutional republic in the deep state? These are enemies of we the people. But of course, if we stand for the Constitution, they recognize that we are their enemies. So it's really call the you know the the pot calling the kettle black. They're saying you're the enemy of the government. Well, no, 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 not unless the government has become the enemy of the Constitution. And the government has become the enemy of the people. And, and really, when we look at history, this is exactly the position our founders were in. They were saying, King George III, you have violated your oath of office. He had sworn as king that he would uphold the Englishman's Bill of Rights, that less than 100 years before the founding of our country, uh, Englishman's Bill of Rights had been signed by the king and every subsequent king, including King George III, had sworn an oath before Almighty God in a religious ceremony that he was going to abide by the Englishman's Bill of Rights. And King George III did not do that. The other thing that King George III had sworn he would do was to abide by the Magna Carta. And he was not doing that. And so they were arguing the king has violated his oath. He has become an enemy to we the people. He has become an enemy to the government of which he is the supposed head. And that's why they say that uh, you know uh, a prince whose character is thus described is unfit to be the ruler of a free people because he's in violation of the basic principles of liberty and justice, and he is not committed to anything but, well, his own aggrandizement, and of course the aggrandizement of the members of parliament who benefited from uh, uh, the policies that they were enacting against the colonists. But when we look at what they had to complain about, <laughs> it is far, far, far less than what we are dealing with with a government who's actually turned on we the people. 
And that government only exists by the permission of we, the people. We have a system that is consent of the governed, and our form of consent is the Constitution. In other words, we have agreed that the Constitution is the standard of law to which our government must uh, abide. And that's our, uh, when the, the people who swear an oath and then turn around and violate that Constitution, they have violated the consent of we, the people. We have given no consent for the federal government to have a Department of Education. Nor do I think we've given consent for the federal government to develop a CIA. That's not part of our constitution. All on the list of you know uh, federal agencies that ought to be abolished because we never gave our consent in the terms of the constitution for any of these things to be done. Problem being is, however, if the American people do not know the constitution, do not know the limitations that were set forward uh, for our federal government, then of course we're going to not know that they're in violation of that standard, and therefore we won't know that we need to pull them in. We need to uh, pull them back from the, the, their uh, headlong plunge into the destruction of our constitutional republic. You make an interesting point about the, uh, the stamp tax. Um, I saw somewhere, and I wish I could find it again, but I saw somewhere where the estimate uh, was that it represented no more than 3% of uh, an individual's income. And uh, that's very interesting because if you look at our incomes today um, and how they're taxed by all levels of government, I think we're talking about 50%. And really, the way the rules are, are written, there is no reason why the uh, uh, government is limited to going all the way to 100%. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was... Uh... Uh, AOC who proposed something like 90, 97% tax on certain incomes. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, at that level, uh, we are absolute slaves. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. I mean, we may have more movement uh, uh, freedom, physical movement freedom, but that's very, very, uh, that's, that's useless. If all of that movement must be uh, involved in raising um, taxes for the federal government, mm -hmm. and and really, when you think of it, uh, at fifty percent, we are, we are, you know, fifty percent slaves. Yeah, and uh, you know, and there's there's a relationship here, I think, to this myth about no taxation without representation. Um, I was brought up on this, and gosh, only knows how many others were brought up on the the idea that. Uh, the cause of the American Revolution was uh, no taxation without representation. Well, I, the idea had been explored prior to the, the uh, revolution, no question about it. And uh, certain people, including, I think, uh, uh, Adam Smith, uh, was interested in having a, a free market zone so that um, you know, there, there would be no excessive tax of the uh, colonists, they would be treated truly as as other citizens. But uh, really, when you think about it, the whole mentality, and this is this is described so well by Barbara Tuckman in uh, the March of Folly. By the way, the whole idea uh, within the government was, uh, and of course within British society as well, was that these these people over here, even though they were originally came from Europe. They were savages, basically. 
very uncivilized and so forth and didn't didn't really have all the rights that everybody else should have. Well, this is this is kind of uh, strange. I mean, um, suppose that, uh, for example, uh, representation in parliament had been allowed. Now, to begin with, um, parliament was not really representative in the way we think of a, of a parliamentary body today. There were just a huge number of what are called rotten boroughs. These were generally country uh, uh, boroughs uh, that were under the control of a local aristocrat, and uh, they could be depended upon to to vote in a, a certain way. So really, that was a corrupt government. But if it had been opened up based upon population, our population was increasing, I think, twice as fast as the British population. So anybody who had any facility with mathematics could figure out that it would not be long before all the votes would be from the United States, or what is now the United States, would then have been the uh, the colonies. The, the British people and the British parliament, the British ruling class, would not have tolerated that. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, you know, we have to really question this, this nonsense about, about uh, uh, no taxation without representation. It's an absurd idea, and it's used as a cover-up. Mm-hmm. And basically, the idea is, the corollary, if you, you, you will, is that, well, now that you have representation, we can tax you to death. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're certainly working on doing that. And by the way, back to the thought on movement, you're saying that, well, we still have the freedom of movement. During COVID, it was interesting to see my state, there were threats, you know, you're going to be pulled over by the cops because if you're out on the street, you're spreading COVID and we got to lock you down your own. I mean, I don't know that that ever happened, but there was certainly the threat uh, that I remember passing by a firehouse and the flashing sign outside the firehouse was, go home, go home, go home. It's like, yeah, nice message from your government. Don't go moving about. But what's happening on a worldwide scale is that this uh, totalitarian system of thinking is moving forward with what they call 15-minute cities. And there's some cities in Europe that are already doing this. In England, I think there was Oxford is one of these where you will be limited to traveling 15 minutes from your home in any direction, and you will be shut down outside that zone. They'd be uh, financially, you won't be able to spend anything outside that zone. Uh, you know, if you're an electric car, your electric car shuts off at the end of that zone or whatever means they're going to try to use to lock people into what they're calling 15-minute cities. Of course, the excuse is, oh, we're going to save the planet, you know, we're going to stop pollution and all this garbage that, that, that they're spewing. But really, it's about control. And they recognize that if you have the freedom of movement, that gives them less control over you. So they want to put people in little cages you know, not not uh, prisons that are visible, so to speak, but perhaps you might say they're digital prisons, whereby you are are restricted in your freedom of movement. And uh, this has already been tested. Australia had a, I think, a half a kilometer. You would be arrested during COVID if you were found more than half a kilometer from your place of residence. So you went out jogging one day, and you you know turned down the wrong way, and you went half half a kilometer away. Sorry. The police were going to arrest you for that movement. So this is being tested because the totalitarians recognize that to control people, they have to control movement as well as income, as well as your thoughts, everything. 
uh, they, they want. And uh, so we're looking at a kind of 1984 uh, uh, scenario where the absolute control of not only everything in, in your environment and your life, but most of all, your thinking. That's what they couldn't stand with, you know, Winston there. It, it, would, it was apparent his thinking had got out of the box of what the 1984 uh, system, uh, their new speak and all the things that they were doing to control their thinking, that, that they failed with him. And so they had to beat him back uh, in, into submission. Well, God help us. We don't want to ever, ever move into that sort of system. But unless we, the people, think through carefully what's being done to us and have the standard of our constitution to measure what is permissible for our federal and state governments to do and what is impermissible. In other words, unless we stand up and fight for our liberty, I believe we're certainly going to lose it. Well, Pastor Whitney, just just very quickly here, you mentioned uh, the, the commitment to the destruction of the constitution. And of course, where where did all of that start? You you can go back into the, the past, and, and it's very difficult to find out, but we do know where it started formally. And it started specifically with addresses made by Woodrow Wilson, mm -hmm. who was not just a Democratic president. He was a progressive Democratic president. In other words, yes. he represents the people— uh, who are in charge right uh, right today, and uh, that's how it started. And the history of that is important to understand because the destruction that began with Woodrow Wilson was added to and piled on with great force by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, FDR was one of the most destructive presidents, but he was not the only one. I mean, LBJ with his uh, you know great society, and we're going to tax you to death, and we're going to do this war on poverty, and all. And, you know, and then I, I have to say that other than Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, those two presidents in, in my lifetime, well, though I, I have to add the exception because I was alive when JFK was assassinated. And other than JFK, uh, Reagan and Trump, all of the other presidents, in my view, every one of them contributed to the destruction of our constitutional republic and the establishment of this new world order, this totalitarian government in which you will have none. Of your God-given rights protected. That's exactly where this is headed. If we don't stand up and, and fight against it, well, I can I can go back to uh, uh, the FDR years, and I can assure you that you are absolutely on target. <laughs> now, when we look at that New Deal, I think there was a good book put out, uh, New Deal or Raw Deal. So, if you want to read how bad what FDR did to our our country in those days, it, it's all there. But we, the people, can recover because we are the source of authority for our government. We're the one that God has given us rights. Those rights come from him and from him alone. And if the purpose of government is to protect our God-given rights, we, the people, are in charge of that. And that's what our founders understood. They said, we're not under the thumb of King George III. Consent of the government means we need to consent to be under his thumb. And if we don't consent because he's not protecting our God-given rights, we can alter or abolish. But we need a standard by which to do that. And that's why what we're doing here, we, the people, the Constitution matter, is aimed at doing exactly that. If you'd like to communicate with us, use my email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at the American View, all one word, theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. And we encourage you, check out the website, 1180WFYL. Our podcasts are there for the past five, six years. Great resource. And join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution matters. <laughs>